Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and the privilege of worship. And ask now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take the Word of God and open it to our understanding and exalt the name of Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage for today is Psalm 32. Hear the word of the Lord in this psalm by David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as if in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule whose understanding has none, and which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May God bless the reading of his word. We all live in a time of information overload, the information highway, internet access 24-7. There was a man named Daniel Borstein who wrote a book entitled Image. He was professor of history and cultural anthropology at the University of Chicago for 25 years. He was given the honorific title of National Librarian by the U.S. Senate, a man of great esteem, renown, and he wrote a book. And let me read just a brief paragraph from that book. He says, the news gap has become so narrow that in order to have additional news for each new edition or each new broadcast, it was necessary to plan in advance the stages by which news is made available. After the weekly and daily came the extras and the numerous regular editions, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin soon had seven editions every day. No rest for the newsman. With more space to fill, he had to fill it ever more quickly. And in order to justify the numerous additions, it was increasingly necessary that the news constantly change, or at least seem to change. We have news programs every hour, on the hour, and sometimes on the half hour, programs interrupted by, at any time, for special bulletins. He says this information overload. It was interesting, that book which is a wonderful book, was written in what year? This is multiple choice. Uh, 2007, 1998, or 1961? The answer is C. And Borstein died 15 years after that, or 20 years after that. I wonder what he would say today to us. If it was overload, then some of us remember sitting at home watching Bonanza, and we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. They'd go to something, go, oh, good grief. 
We want to see Haas and Little Joe, not special news bulletins. But we have that all the time now. And so we're inundated with information time after time, time after time after time. It's on and on and on and on. You can never, ever stay on top of the news or stay on top of your specialty if you're in medicine or your calling, whatever it is. You can't stay on top of it. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, really what's, what's really interesting and what's really essential for us to understand is there are only a few things that are absolutely necessary for us to know. The Bible teaches that. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that is what I seek after, that I may gaze upon the beauty all the days of my life. The Apostle Paul, in writing in Philippians 3, just talked about his background in Judaism and how he was a Pharisee and how he was without fault and observing the law. And then he says, I came to know Christ. And after I came to know Christ, he said this, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do. And so as I think about this, there, there are certain things that we really must understand. And what I'm going to speak on this morning is absolutely essential. And it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's a hard subject. I'm doing this whole issue of the assurance of salvation, really, as there's been a springboard from the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament, especially chapter 2, that talks about false teachers and how people in the church would succumb to false teaching. As we talked about these false teachers and assurance, we mentioned that a man named R.C. Sproul wrote a book years ago called The Essential Doctrine of the Christian Faith, and he said there are four types of people in our culture today. The, the first type are people who say that uh, I'm not a believer, I'm not a follower of Christ, and if that's your place, your position, well, I'm glad you're here because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So I hope that as the Bible's taught and sung and spoken, that 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 God will open your heart to believe. And then there are those who, who, are, who say, I, I think I'm a believer. I, I, I think I've trusted him, but I have no real assurance that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. I, I just, I don't know. When we dealt with that two weeks ago, kind of, sort of. And then there's the third position, the wonderful position of those who say, you know, I've trusted Christ alone. He died for my sins upon the cross. And I know that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. That it's only the work of Christ. And I rejoice that the Bible says that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I rejoice the Bible says that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I rejoice the scripture says that no one can snatch me from the Father's hand because the Father is greater than all. I rejoice that I received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It is a good place to be. And it makes me want to sing and dance. And then, and then there's the fourth group. And the fourth group says basically, yeah. Somewhere in the past, I've walked an aisle or signed a card or went to a youth camp or did something, and, but it really makes no difference in my life. It really hasn't impacted the way I live. It's, I'm just there. I, I call that an environmental faith or a familial faith that's not saving faith. It's just the faith of a cultural standard. It's not a faith that really saves. We call those people backslidden potentially or lapsed. And when we talked about this, I, I said, God, there's two errors to avoid. And please hear this. When you meet someone who's backslidden and they seem to be 
uncaring about their sin and no desire to really honor the Lord, you cannot say with finality, I know that he is not a believer because you don't know his or her heart. Only God knows their heart. And Christians do fall into sin and they do continue there, but they don't stay there forever. They get out. So you, you cannot say, I know he's not a Christian. You don't know his heart. Only God knows his heart. On the other hand, you cannot say to that person, well, I know you are a believer because you don't know his heart. And see, the book of 2 Peter says, this is make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, make your calling, make your election sure. And then I was thinking about the book of Philippians, written in the New Testament to a wonderful group of people that Paul loved. And he talked about the fact that if God began a good work in them, he'll bring it to completion in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And then he launches into this beautiful hymn about the greatness and glory of Christ and how we should take on the mind of Christ and do nothing from selfishness or, or empty conceit. And he glories in the goodness of Christ. And then he makes this, this turn. This pastoral turn is a little bit strange in the context of the passage. After talking about the glory of Christ and God's work in them, he says this in chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to work and to act according to his good pleasure. Fear and trembling. I'm going, Paul, what is this about? I mean, you talked about the glory of our salvation. You talked about who Christ is, what he's done, that we should have his mind in our lives. And, but then he says, be careful. Be careful. Because he says, Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We are known by our fruit. Be careful. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And so this morning, I want to talk about that issue. Just last punch at the assurance of salvation, four types of people. And I want to do it by covering Psalm 32, which is a psalm written by King David after a horrendous episode in his life. It's found in 2 Samuel 11. Now, I'm going to try to make this a PG-13 story when really it's a hard R story. And the problem with some of us is we want to live in a PG world, and this isn't a PG world. The Bible's not a PG book, by the way. It deals with the warts and blemishes and failures and brokenness of men and women who are called people of God. And it gives me great hope. I mean, really, if I was going to write a story of the life of David, I would have left out 2 Samuel 11. Because it's bad. And here's the story. David's king. He's in Jerusalem. And the Bible says at the time of the year when kings usually go out to do battle, he sent the troops out under General Joab, and he stayed home. And so late in the afternoon, you know the story, David gets up. He's walking around the palatial grounds. He looks over the wall, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. And so in a chilling statement, the Bible says David sent for her and he took her to himself. She's married. He took her in. They had intimacy. And she leaves and she sends him a message a couple of weeks later. David, I'm pregnant. 
and my husband is in the field with the army. What are we going to do? Well, David thinks this is what we'll do. And so he sent a messenger to General Joab, and he says, Please send Uriah home. He is the husband of Bathsheba. And so Uriah comes home, and David greets him. I'm like, what is David doing greeting me? He greets him, and then he, he sends a present with him home to his wife, and he goes to his home, and he sees Bathsheba, who's a beautiful woman. And yet he doesn't go in, and he sleeps in the doorway of his house. And everybody in the neighborhood talked about it. Uriah came home. There's his wife. He's been in the fields. He didn't go in. He slept in the doorway of his house. And David goes, oh, no. My scheme isn't working. And so he throws a banquet for Uriah. King David throws a banquet for Uriah. Maybe he's going to get the King Medal of Honor or something. I don't know. And so he feasts with him, and he gets him a little drunk and tipsy, and he pushes him after the banquet towards the home of his wife, and once again, he sleeps in the doorway. And David asked him after the first night, he says, well, why, why, why in the world did you not go in and enjoy the embrace of a beautiful woman who's your wife? And he said, King David, he said, please understand, I, I, I want to go in, but, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is in the field. My general is in the field. My fellow soldiers are bivouacked in the field. How can I go in and enjoy the fruit of peacetime living when we're at war against the bad guys? And that statement must have taken a dagger and plunged it into David's heart. And Uriah is a man of valor and courage. I'm reading a book called Rebel Yell. It's the story of Stonewall Jackson. And I was reading Jackson's life. I thought of Uriah. Jackson was a general who never slept behind the lines. He slept in the front lines. He would just fall in his tracks and sleep sometimes from sheer exhaustion. He would fall asleep on some rail, rails and just and sleep and get up and go. And in August of 1862, the Troops, southern troops were fighting the northern troops at a place called Cedar Mountain. Jackson is observing the battle, and he sees that the left flank is about to give way. In fact, they're retreating, and they're about to be engulfed by the northern troops under Nathaniel Banks. And Jackson, it says, got on his horse, and he rode with all of his might for 400 yards, leaping over several fences. And he took out his sword, and he said, turn back, men, turn back. And they did not. And then he grabbed the standard of the battalion, and he took out his sword, and he stood up, and he says, follow me, men, follow your general in the battle. And, and, and really, in the Civil War, the guy carrying the standard always got shot because that was an honor bearer. So Jackson goes charging into battle on top of a horse, and the biographer says it had an electric and an immediate effect on his troops, and they turned, and they won the battle, won the day. That's the kind of guy Uriah was. And so David sends Uriah back with a message, sealed message, to Joab. Joab, attack a city that is impregnable and make sure that Uriah is in the heat of the battle. And he did that. And in a chilling statement in the Bible says that David sent Uriah, excuse me, Joab sent Uriah and some other valiant men, valiant men into battle, and Uriah was killed in battle. And Joab sent a messenger back to David to say, we lost a battle, a skirmish, and several men died, including Joab. 
And when David heard that, he thought, my plan has succeeded. He goes out and he takes the grieving widow into his home and embraces her as his wife. It's a seedy story. It involves adultery, theft, lying, deceit, the murder of a man and other valiant men to cover up your sin. If you're a secularist, you're looking at this as well, David's won the day. Nobody, there's no DNA testing. David, nobody can prove that's not Uriah's baby. I mean, he's won the day. He's got a beautiful woman in his house as his wife. He's won the day. David should be sitting on his throne saying, I've snookered everyone. But here's the, here's the issue, church. David was miserable. He was miserable. Listen to these verses. Psalm 32, listen. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up or sapped as in the heat of summer. See, th this guy was miserable because David had the Holy Spirit of the living God. And sin robs a man of all that is good and great if he's a believer in Jesus. If you have the Holy Spirit and you're involved in sin or getting ready to take a step into sin that will defile the name of the Lord and ruin your reputation and bring disgrace upon the people of God and, and, and you're going there and you are miserable, that's a good sign. It's a good sign to be miserable in your sin. If you're in sin, going into sin, you say, it's no big deal. I'm going to do my own thing. I call the shots. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Yeah, I profess Jesus, but it's no big deal. That's a bad sign. Because if you're a believer, you have received the Holy Spirit of the living God. And the Holy Spirit won't let you be involved in sin without confessing it and fleeing from it. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. David was miserable. Had everything going for him. Deceived everybody. All-powerful. Beautiful wife. Everything. And he says, the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. The second issue here about this backsliddenness in this passage is that, is that this attitude severely limits our effectiveness in the kingdom of God and blessing our family and the generations to come. Sin destroys so if you find your heart unengaged, if you find yourself slipping, if you, your passions are, 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 fight against it, plead, Holy Spirit, come. I read an article recently about the nation of Bhutan. Bhutan is a Himalayan kingdom, uh, supposedly a beautiful place, surrounded by all these great mountains. And, and the people of Bhutan do not want us to visit them in this regard. They don't want us to spoil their country. It, years ago, we, when I was up there, the, we had some workers going in there to try to share the gospel, establish churches, and build up the churches that are there. And to go there, if you're not a, if you're a non-Bhutanese, it costs you 250 bucks a day to get a visitor's visa. So you do that for three weeks, and you, you're selling out some cash. But there was a BBC story this week about a man who spent time in Bhutan, and he said he was impressed with their joy, and he loved the country of Bhutan, which everybody says when they go there. And he asked some people, he says, what is, what is the key to your joy? And they said, well, 
We think about death every day. He said, I beg your pardon. So we think about death every day. Really, they're supposed to think about death five times a day. He said, I don't understand. He said, well, we're Buddhists. It's a Buddhist kingdom, and we believe that karma will follow you, that if you do good today and if you're joyful today and live well today, that when you die, you'll be reincarnated at a higher life state, a higher position in life. And so we are joyfully thinking about death so that we can come back in a higher state. And I thought, you know, if, if they have a sobriety and a joyful sobriety about death, how much more, 1,000 times more should we who believe that you have one life and after that you have a judgment and you go to heaven or you go to hell. And so life takes on incredibly strong, embracing dimensions. And we realize that sin severely limits our usefulness to those around us and in the kingdom of God. And then also sin takes away our joy. Verse 4, once again, my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. And I, I read that, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And I thought, King David lived in Jerusalem, humidity 19%. What would he say in Charleston, humidity 85%. Really bad. Sapped. See, sin takes away our joy and our happiness and our dancing and our laughter and our hope. And if you're a lapsed Christian or a backslid in your state, it takes away uncertainty. It takes away certainty. It produces uncertainty in your life. I'm not sure where I stand because by your, their fruit you shall know them. Lord, am I really in you? I mean, I, am I really there? I read from the Screwtape Platters two weeks ago. C.S. Lewis says this, supposedly writing for the devil, there is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a man's mind against the enemy or God. There's nothing like suspense or anxiety. And if, if you don't have certainty, th there's no joy, in my opinion. There's no joy. If you can't stand up and say, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I belong to the Lord. It takes away your certainty. You see, a lack of certainty leads to frustration and doubt. And I don't want you to have that. I hope you understand this illustration. We just finished college basketball season. We're having the pro playoffs now, and I was thinking about certainty and hope, and I, th I thought about there's a basketball game, and it's 91 to 90. Your team is behind, and there's 0.3 seconds left. The game is over, really. It's over, but you're, a guy gets fouled. And let's say the guy that just got fouled a few years ago playing for Duke is a guy named J.J. Reddick. J.J. Reddick shot 95 percentile from the free throw line. I've never, I've never seen anybody shoot free throws the way this guy shoots free throws. I mean, it was a done deal. When he missed a free throw, it was like, oh, what just happened? What, what just happened? And so you're sitting there, and you're pulling for Duke, and it's .3 seconds to go, and the opposing coach calls two consecutive timeouts to ice the shooter. And you look at your buddies and say, hey, why don't we hit the exit and beat the rest of the people out of the, out of the parking lot? They say, are you kidding me? There's, there's 0.3 seconds to go. We're one point down. If he hits both, the game's over. And you say, hey, the game is over. It's J.J. Reddick. He's going to hit these free throws. Let's get out of here. We've won. Conversely, let's say the inbounds passer makes a mistake, and instead of throwing it to J.J. Reddick, he throws it to a 6'10", 
290-pound, strong guy who plays center but has spatial limitations. And he's a 43% free throw shooter. And they hack him. And they call a double timeout. And you're sitting there the whole time about to be nauseated with your head in your hands because you're thinking, he's going to brick it. He's going to throw a brick up there, and we're, we're going to lose. And sure enough, after two timeouts, he gets there, and he bangs it off the backboard. And he hit the rim. There's no certainty. J.J. is certainty. Listen, the reality of God for us in Christ is a great certainty. Rejoice in that. Be glad. Be glad. If you're lapsed or backsliding, though, it takes away the joy of certainty. That's one of the great... May may's here, people get married. One of the great joys of marriage in the Lord is at the end of the day, when I go home or when my wife comes home, we will be there for each other. I'm not going anywhere. We're there. Now, sometimes, quite frankly, it's tough to go home because they're going to be there, you know, because marriage can be tough at times. But, but, you know, you work it out. That's part of being married. You just work it out. And I saw a headline in a national news magazine three weeks ago. It showed a young woman on the cover. It said that her, she says her marriage is over. We tried everything to make our marriage work these last three years, but it's just not going to work. And I thought, give me a break. Give me a break. See, a covenantal marriage says, we're there. A, a marriage of contractual agreement says, I will meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. If that's the way you enter marriage, I don't see how any marriage survives more than three months. If you, I'm going I'm to meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. Just look in the mirror and say, am I meeting her? You're not meeting her needs. I'm not. But, but there's certainty in a marriage that's in the Lord. Now, let me go quickly to this. Avoiding a backslidden state. What do you do? How do you avoid a backslidden state? I'm going to do this very fast. Our time is fleeting. Number one is you listen to the word of God. Listen, look at verses 8 and 9. I, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't come near to you. He says, God says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. And I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is a passage that I've thought through hundreds of times. And I've got some questions about the passage in this regard. It's a well-known passage. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, able to do every good work. Now, so I've thought about that passage. Here's, here's what kind of has gripped me. All Scripture is given inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. I get that. I can understand the character and the mind of God. I, I get that. For correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. And I've, I've studied those words and taken those words apart. Really, those, those last three words are basically synonyms. Synonyms. Now I'm going, you know, why did the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, use three words that are synonyms? And here's the answer, I think. 
because he wants the people to understand that the Bible teaches us the character of God, but the Bible as a worship manual that shows us the glory of Jesus is to correct and instruct and change and shape the contours of our lives. And as, as, I, as I think about this issue, I ask myself, am I listening to the Word of God? As I struggle with sin, am I letting the Word of God shape my character and my life? Are you reading and taking in and thinking through the Bible? Number two, I've got to confess and flee quickly from my sin or my heart may become hardened. Listen to verses five to seven. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, now, I want you to look at this. David says, I acknowledged my sin. I didn't cover it up. I spoke it. I confessed it. You forgave me. And he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to him while he may be found. So, so he says, run to the Lord quickly. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it the next hour. You run to the Lord quickly because there is such a thing as, as the hardening of the heart that, that grows callous and uncaring to the things of God. Don't let yourself go there. Now, Hebrews chapter 3 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And David says, pray to the Lord, run to the Lord while he may be found. Here's the rest of the story. So David is sitting on his throne. He's miserable. He's miserable. Every hour of every day, he's miserable. He has all the authority, all the power, all the wealth, everything. He's miserable. And so he's sitting there one day in his misery. And in walks a guy named Nathan, who's kind of an out there prophet, kind of a desert warrior prophet. And Nathan says, I've got a story to tell you, oh, great king. He says, tell me the story. He said, there was a man, there is a man in your kingdom who has thousands of sheep. He's a wealthy landowner. And next to him was a tenant farmer with one little ewe lamb. And that little ewe lamb came into the house and was fed scraps from the table as the family ate and was the pet of the family, loved that little ewe lamb. And so this great, wealthy farmer, shepherd, had a guest that came and he went over to the tenant farmer and he grabbed the ewe lamb and he slit the ewe lamb's throat and he barbecued the ewe lamb and they had a supper with that man's one little sheep. And David said, in justified fury, who is the man he will forfeit with his life? And Nathan said, you are the man. And David said, I've sinned. I've sinned. And I, 
As I read that, I think, you know, how, how, how long would have David played the game and been miserable? How long? He was miserable. But he needed a friend to come in and say, you're the man. And I looked at my life and I said, do I have Nathans in my life who had the freedom and really the calling to say to me, you're the man. You're the man. You're the man. And one of them should be my wife, my kids, my in-laws. I mean, to say, please, please. And my challenge is, do you have Nathans in your life who have the freedom to say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Don't go there. Don't do that. The other thing is this. Remember, very, remember the goodness and the beauty and the wonder of the Lord. See, David says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad, O, in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. And then the first two verses are the conclusion of the matter. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord casts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed, happy, singing, dancing is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. And if I'm to be someone who avoids this lapsing, this coldness, this creeping Distance, I've got to be someone who remembers and rejoices in the goodness and the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God. Take two more minutes. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, wrote a book entitled the, the Nature of True Virtue. Edwards died in 1758. This is what he said. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty. Do you see that? God is the foundation of all being and all beauty from whom all is perfectly derived. All the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of the Trinitarian beauty of God. You hear that? I love that. Edward says, everything about us is beautiful are the diffused beams that flows from the Trinitarian nature of God. And, and David is celebrating the goodness of God, the mercy of God. The love of God, the forgiveness of sins. In, in dealing with this, I've been studying 1 John, but in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, John says in the New Testament, he says, We know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his Holy Spirit. We know we're in him because we have received the Holy Spirit. I said, Okay, John, but how do we know? Well, we're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, We know that we have come to him. And to believe in the love that God has for us because God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. So we know that we abide in him because God is love. It's okay, John, but what else? And if you keep on reading the text, he answers it, I think. He gives us an anchor for our soul. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment and Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It says, amen, John, you're right. Because Christ is our mediator, because he's our fancy word in chapter 2, our propitiation, our covering. There's no fear because the judgment we should have experienced, Christ experienced for us. And then he says this, and here's the anchor for my soul. Verse 9, we love him because he first loved us. It's a short verse. 
We love him because he first loved us. That's the anchor. I, I can't explain it. I don't fully understand it. But God has an outreaching, embraceive love for his people. We love him because he first loved us. It's interesting. If you, if you read books or Google articles about backsliding or lapsed Christians, people are going to give you a checklist. And I read one article that gave you 10 things to do if you find yourself lapsed or backsliding. Number one is read the Bible seriously. Number two is pray diligently. Number three is get involved in a Bible-believing church. Number four is have Christian friends who, who are strong. And, he goes, oh. and number nine was think about the work of God for you. And I thought, wow, I would put it in the reverse order. If, if I'm going to avoid lapsing or getting cold-hearted, and boy, we all struggle with that. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to meditate and think frequently on the glory of the cross of Jesus. That when I was dead in my sins and my transgressions, Jesus died for me. And then I'm going to read the Bible. And then I'm going to think deeply about the glory of the cross and what Christ has done for me when he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And then I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to think about the cross and glory and the wonder of Jesus. And he cried out, it is finished. And the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom in the Holy of Holies. And then I'm going to get involved in a Bible-believing church. But I'm going to think about Jesus and the cross all the time. That warms my heart. That builds my spirit. So church, do that. Do that. And if you're thinking about going into a sin, or if you're involved in a sin, listen, run from it. Go to somebody you can pray with and say, I need to pray with you. I need, I need to deal with this. I want you to, to be a Nathan in my life and walk me through this. Because everyone here has had Nathans in their life if they're older than 35, who's walked with them and loved them and listened to them and counseled them and warned them. I have many times. We need that. We need each other in the body of Christ. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you that the Bible is a book that shows the downside of some of its heroes. Thank you that David is called a man after God's own heart. David, a forerunner in the genealogy of Jesus. David, the one to whom you said, there'll always be someone to sit on your throne. This is David. And so this episode with Bathsheba is there for our warning. It's there for our instruction. So teach us, Lord, I pray. And I, I pray that you would allow us to glory in the cross and be glad and wholehearted. I pray that you would have Nathans in our lives who speak truth and who love us. So God, do that in us and do that through us. Blessed be your name this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.